You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. working our way through the parables that Jesus told, and uh, tonight we come to one which most commentators that I read in studying for this said this is the most difficult parable that there is. One said this is the most disturbing parable that this is, and I uh, I told my wife last week that this is the one that we were going to talk about this week, and she was like, I hate that parable. It's like my least favorite. It's so frustrating. So... um, that's just great preparation as we read it, that this is the most difficult, disturbing, frustrating parable that there is. But I will say that only reinforces what we've been discovering all along, that Jesus intentionally told these stories to frustrate you, to agitate you, to make you rethink who God is and what it even means to connect with him. So that's why he told these stories, to kind of get under your skin. So here this one coming out of Mu, uh, Mu. <laughs> Matthew, or our other syllables in that word. Matthew chapter 20 beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who were hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is God's word. Let me pray, and then we'll consider it. Father, as we turn our attention to this passage, I pray that you would give us focus. I know that a lot of us are distracted with tests and projects and papers that we've got to get done before fall break. And so I pray that you would enable us by your spirit's power to engage with this text, which is so shocking and disturbing and revealing. And I pray that uh, your spirit would do that, that, that he would comfort us and afflict us in the areas that we need to be comforted and afflicted. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have one thesis 
tonight, and it's this, that you hate grace, and that I hate it too. And some of you are thinking, uh, WTH, why would he say that? Because this is RUF, like that's all they ever talk about, and RUF is grace. Of course we don't hate grace. Why? How can anyone hate grace? Well, let me uh, set up this way why I think it's true that you hate grace. Um, There was a period of four years from 1987 to 1991 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where 16 young men were drugged, raped, tortured, murdered. Their bodies were dismembered, and on some occasions, parts of their bodies were eaten by a man named Jeffrey Dahmer. One of, the, one of the U.S.'s most notorious serial killer. I'm kind of getting gooby just thinking about it. When I was doing research to gear up for this, for this uh, talk, like on the screen, it literally made me dizzy and like uh, stomach turn. Some of the stuff that this guy did during these four years of his kind of killing spree. I'll give you one uh, detail. Uh, while his victims were still alive... He would often drill holes in their skull and then pour in acid or boiling water into their brain. And I won't give you any more details because it gets more disturbing than that. So he was uh, arrested and imprisoned. And uh, this was in 1991 when he was arrested and imprisoned. And three years later, he was beaten to death in prison by another inmate with a metal pole. But prior to his death... Jeffrey Dahmer repented of his sin and put his faith in Jesus and became a voracious Bible reader. Uh, A pastor would come to the prison and meet with him once a week. He was the assistant to the chaplain of the prison. He was baptized. Everyone that knew him that was close to him uh, said that his life had been transformed by the love of Jesus. And here's what that means. That, that means on November 28, 1994, when Jeffrey Dahmer was killed, he was welcomed into heaven, and the father of the universe looked at him and said, well done, good and faithful servant. You are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, and I find you staggeringly beautiful. And if you work out the logic of this, this means that people that are not in Christ but have lived much better lives compared to Jeffrey Dahmer, will not receive that welcome. And that's why we hate grace. Jeffrey Dahmer ate his victims. And for all we know, if it's true, for all we know, he's in heaven. Sarah Silverman is a comedian, stand-up comedian, and she has this clip on YouTube. I think it's just a little slice of her stand-up bit. It's called Religion is Crazy. And I want to just read a couple of, ex- or I just want to read one excerpt from it, and I'm going to edit it for obvious reasons. Um, she starts talking about Christianity, and she says, Christianity is super old, but it's effing crazy. You're born a sinner. By being born, you are a sinner, and you're going to hell. But you can just apologize and go to heaven. No big deal. If you're a murderer, same thing. Just apologize and go to heaven. You can be Hitler and go to confession and say, Father, forgive me, I killed six million Jews. And the priest will just be like, no problem. Just say ten Heil Marys. Her little joke. Say ten Heil Marys and Hitler goes to heaven. Hitler goes to heaven. She's just putting words to what we all deep down feel. We hate this. 
grace sounds insane when you think of, when you think it out. We hate grace. And it's into this kind of universal allergy, hatred of this idea called grace, Jesus tells this story. And so let me just kind of recap the story to kind of get at what is going on with the story, and then we'll kind of draw some applications from it. He says, the the kingdom of God is kind of like a man who owned this giant estate, this vineyard. And early in the morning, 6 a.m. in the morning, he went out to this marketplace to gather some workers. And it kind of worked the same way then as it does now, that... If you were poor and unemployed, you would go to a marketplace and kind of gather there and wait to be hired. And it was humiliating. You just sit there and wait for someone to hire you. And it was terrifying because you never knew if someone was going to hire you. And this was your only means to pay, uh, to get money to feed your family. So they're sitting there waiting. And the workday was 12 hours, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And here early in the morning, this guy goes. And he goes up to this crew and he says, uh, I'll pay you a denarius for, your, for a day of labor, which was... Typical day's wage, 120 bucks, let's say, $10 an hour. They agree, and finally they're like, we got hired. They go into the field skipping because it's like, I can feed my family now. This is awesome. 6 a.m., they work. The owner of this vineyard goes back out to the marketplace, 9 a.m., sees another crew of people standing there waiting, and he hires them, brings them to his vineyard, and they continue working. And he goes back out at noon, hires some more people. Goes back out at 3, hires some more people. Goes back out again at 5. This means one hour left in the workday. And he goes out there and it says in verse 6, he approaches this crew and he says, why are y'all standing here? And they say, no one's hired us. He's like, okay, come on. Brings them back to his vineyard for one hour of work. And you would imagine when they get there... They kind of are doing the math and they figure out that, okay, these people that have been here all day are getting paid 120 bucks. I'm only going to work one hour. That's 10 bucks. Not great, but at least it's something. And uh, at 6 p.m., the day is over. All the workers kind of gather up because it's payday. And the owner tells his foreman, I want you to pay the people that we just hired, the people that only worked one hour, I want you to pay them first. So they step forward, and the foreman gives them their check or gives them their envelope of cash, 120 bucks. Their jaws drop, their hearts melt. You know, they fall to their knees. They want to kiss and, like, hug the owner because they just got paid an entire day's worth of labor for one hour. They're astounded, blown away. Then the crew that worked three hours steps up. They get 120 bucks, too. And they're blown away. I've worked three hours. I got paid 120 bucks. And on down the line he goes. And as he's doing this, the crew that kind of got hired first, that worked 12 hours, they're seeing this happening. And they're thinking, yeah, wait till it gets to be us. Because they're expecting when it gets to be us, we're going to be compensated uh, quite generously. We've been here since 6 a.m. And they step up to get their kind of handout. And the dude hands them 120 bucks. And they are pissed. And it says in verse 12, they start chewing out the owner. This is unfair. This is unjust. We've been there for 12 hours. We have borne the heat of the day. The sun's been beating down on us. You're going to give us the same amount of money that you gave these chumps that have worked for like 10 minutes? What kind of a dude are you? And the owner's response is this. Uh, pause. I agreed to pay you 120 bucks. I just gave you 120 bucks. What have I done wrong here? 
Have I cheated you in any way? Oh, I get it. You don't think I have the right to do anything I want with my money. Are you seriously getting pissed off because I was so recklessly generous with these other people? And then the story ends. <laughs> you never like the you don't know what they say, you don't know how they respond. It just ends and Jesus kind of throws out this ominous little tagline at the end. The first will be last and the last will be first. This is a story of God's scandalous, irritating grace. And he really shows us why it bothers us so much. And and he shows us because grace really, it does four things. And these are the four things I want to show you tonight. Here's what grace does and here's why it bothers us. Because it offends our pride. It deconstructs our expectations. It confronts our entitlement. And it also blows our mind. So there's your four kind of points that we're going to look at tonight. Here's what grace does. The first thing that grace does is it offends our pride. Question. Dwight Street. Question. Why does the vineyard owner keep going out to the marketplace over and over and over? Because you would think maybe he miscalculated his needs once. Like he goes out at 6 a.m., gets his crew, goes back, and then he realizes, oh man, I need way more help than this. So he goes back out. You could, you could see somebody screwing up, like underestimating his needs once. But he goes back five times. Why in the world would he keep going back over and over and over and over? The only reason that really makes sense is because he is having compassion for these people that are unemployed. He's hiring them, not really because he needs them. He's hiring them because they need it. He sees that they are poor and waiting, and every hour that passes, it's them getting more hungry, more discouraged, with that weight hanging over them of, at the end of this day, I'm going to have to go home and tell my family I came back with nothing. Nothing. And so here is this generous owner that goes to them, and he hires them not because of his benefit, but because of theirs. I mean, one hour of work doesn't really benefit you really all that much. He's giving them wages they don't deserve. He's hiring them not because he needs it, but because they need it. You know, I heard the story recently about a man named Matt LaChapa. Maybe you know this name. He just recently signed a contract with the San Diego Padres baseball team, if you're unfamiliar. And uh, Matt LaChapa does not play baseball. In fact, he can't play baseball. He's in a wheelchair. And the San Diego Padres just signed him. In fact, he has signed a, con- a one-year contract every year for the past 20 years with the San Diego Padres. Now, this is a baseball team. They sign athletes to play baseball. And he's signing a contract, and he's not playing at all. He's doing nothing. Because when he was 19 years old, he was playing for the San Diego Padres. But he had a heart attack, and ever since then, he's been in a wheelchair. But the owner of the team wants him to be able to keep his health insurance. So they give him a contract every year, and he does nothing. He contributes nothing. It's just the owner wants to take care of him, and he contributes zero. And Jesus is saying that's kind of what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. You have an owner that wants to take care of you, but newsflash, you contribute zero. And the reason we hate that is because that's what offends our pride. 
we want to be the people that contribute a lot, especially in America. The cultural narrative of our uh, of America is the only important people are the people that contribute. There are no free handouts, we think. Let's pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is a, uh, the movers and the shakers are the important people. This is why deep down a lot of people, when they pass homeless people, uh, they resent them and they think things like, get a job. You're not valuable because you're not doing anything. This is also why we're so crazy busy. Because we think, I'm only important if I'm doing a lot of stuff. And Jesus says, you are Matt LaChapa in the kingdom of God. You contribute nothing. And that deeply offends our pride. Flannery O'Connor, great uh, southern writer, uh, short storyist, short author, storyist. Um, she says this, grace must wound before it can heal. Grace must wound before it can heal. We like the idea of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. That sounds nice and sweet. But when you're on the receiving end of that, that forces you to admit, I don't merit this. I don't earn this. I don't deserve this. This is you saying, I'm, I'm spiritually speaking, I'm a charity case. Spiritually speaking, I'm bankrupt. I'm on welfare. Or as Jesus put it, you're poor in spirit. But you will never understand the gospel and you will never connect with the God of the Bible Unless you are willing for grace to do its work of not only offending your pride, but killing it. Because that's the first thing grace does. It offends your pride. But the second thing grace does is it deconstructs our expectations. It deconstructs all of our expectations. If you go to the end again, when the the owner asked those 12-hour workers, do I not have the right to do anything that I want with my money? If we were there, our response would be, no! No way you have the right to do whatever you want. And he's saying, wait, so I can't be gracious and generous with whoever I want to be gracious and generous with. And deep down, if we're honest, we would say, no, you can't be gracious with whoever you want. Not with people like Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, You can't be gracious to pedophiles. You can't be gracious to people in ISIS. Uh, Here's the way it works, God. These are our expectations. The good people are in and the bad people are out. And the good people are good because they work hard and they make right decisions and they earn something. And the bad people are bad because they fail or they don't make good choices or they just don't work and therefore they forfeit their rights to any rewards. The good people are in and the bad people are out and we're the good people and this is the way it works, God. You're not allowed to screw up with, you know, like mess with this framework. You know, I don't have to remind you about the horrible tragedy that took place this summer in Charleston, the the shootings, and um, awful, dark, evil, twisted um, moment in our cultural history. And I probably don't have to remind you, you've probably seen the footage of the survivors and the family members that lined up in the courtroom when Dylan Roof was on the screen, and one after the other extended grace and said, I forgive you just astounding, just shocked. I think it shocked our country to hear people receive that much violence and evil and to say, I forgive you. It's astounding. But you should know that not all of the responses to that uh, were positive. There, there was an article, there was a piece that was written in the Washington Post that was published shortly after that um, entitled this, Black America Should Stop Forgiving White Racists. 
It's written by an African-American woman. I just want to read you a couple snippets from this. You can find this online, by the way. It says this at one point. Forgiveness has become a requirement for those enduring the realities of black death in America. Black families are expected to grieve as a public spectacle, to offer comfort, redemption, and a pathway to a new day. The parents of Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, Mike Brown, and the widow of Eric Gardner were all asked in interviews if they would forgive the white men who killed their loved one, which I think is interesting. I didn't know that that was true. She goes on and says, after 9-11, there was no talk about forgiving al-Qaeda, Saddam Hussein, or Osama bin Laden. America declared war. We sought blood and revenge and rushed protective measures into place to prevent future attacks. And then she quotes this Atlantic Monthly author who tweeted, and here's the tweet. Can't remember any campaign to love and forgive in the wake of ISIS beheadings. And then she kind of ends with this. She says, if we really believe that black lives matter, we won't devalue our reality and cheapen our forgiveness by giving it away so quickly and easily. White America needs to earn our forgiveness. Now, I don't know how that lands with you, uh, but I think what she's doing is she's just articulating what's going on in all of our hearts deep down. That this is the way reality works, that the good people are in and the bad people are out. And when the bad people misbehave, they're definitely out. There is no grace extended. Grace disrupts. It deconstructs all of our expectations here. This is why Sarah Silverman says, this thought is insane. It's crazy. But here's the thing. Some of you might be thinking, okay, I know I'm not perfect, Like, I know I'm impatient sometimes, I struggle with drinking, I don't make the best decisions all the time, but I'm generally a kind, nice, hardworking person. And compared to, like, Jeffrey Dahmer, compared to Hitler, like, they're way down on that end of the spectrum. But I want you to know, when we're thinking like that, deep down what we're thinking is this. God giving grace to me makes sense, and it's right. And for God to give grace to those people makes no sense. And it's wrong. Because I'm clearly better. I earn it. I deserve it. I'm one of the good people. Good people are in. Bad people are out. And I'm on the good side of that equation. And don't you see how grace disrupts and deconstructs all of our expectations? Because grace is unmerited favor. It's not about what you merit. It's not about what you earn. It's not about you being good. It's not about being you, you being bad. This is why we hate it. Because it doesn't make sense. It deconstructs our expectations. Here's the third thing grace does. It confronts our entitlement. It confronts our entitlement. Look, when when you think like that, when you think good people are in, bad people are out, and by the way, I'm one of the good ones, what happens is you begin to feel entitled to a good life because you're a good person. This is why you get so angry and frustrated with God when life doesn't pan out the way that you think it should. So, if I could put words to what some of your hearts are thinking and feeling sometimes, I would say something like this. God, I saved myself for marriage. Everyone on this campus seems to be having sex. I'm not. I've chosen to say no. I've chosen to stay uh, celibate. And um, I have a friend that I know is having sex with her boyfriend, and they're about to get engaged. 
And here I am uh, holding myself out for marriage, and I'm single, and graduation is looming. Thanks, God. Or maybe you think things like this. God, I studied my brains out for that test. I sacrificed. Like, I could have gone out, but I didn't. I studied hard, and that guy in my class just partied all weekend. He could give a rip about this class. He looked at his notes for like four seconds, and he got an A, and I got a C. Thanks a lot, God. Or some of you think things like this. I make really hard decisions, and uh, I try, I'm really disciplined about trying to eat well. I exercise a lot. I'm, I'm thoughtful about what I eat. And she uh, just can eat whatever she wants. And her body's perfect. And look at mine. Thanks a lot, God. Or we think things like this. Um, God, I, I really work hard. I'm working two jobs to get money. And because of his parents, he eats out all the time. And look at what he dresses. Look at what he wears. And uh, I'm having to pay for rent and school and books and food and everything else. Thanks. What's going on with our hearts when we think and we feel like that? We are saying, God, you owe me. I'm one of the good ones and therefore I'm entitled to some benefits, to some blessings. I've worked hard. I deserve this. I deserve more. When we live this entitlement kind of life, what that means for us practically is that we're always keeping score. We're always calculating. We're always comparing ourselves with everybody else. This is why if I asked you right now, if I put you on the spot, some of you would know off the top of your head right this moment how many times your roommate has done the dishes compared to how many times you've done the dishes. You're keeping score in your head. Or some of you know right now uh, the exact dollar amount of money that people owe you. Or if you're in a relationship, a romantic one, uh, that you know... Your boyfriend or girlfriend, you know how many times they've done that thing that frustrates you because you're keeping score in your head. You're keeping tally in your score. And what we're doing when we make these calculations and these comparisons, we're doing this calculation in our head to create a basis for us to look at and say, this is why I'm better. I'm one of the good ones. I deserve more. I'm better than them because look at it. Look at the score. And grace really does come in and confronts our entitlement. It confronts our sense of entitlement because it's not about what you've earned. It's not about what you've deserved. It's not about you. That's why we hate it. But here's the question. How can we get to a point where we actually love it? How can we get to a point where this last thing I'll say, where grace will really blow our mind and transform us and astound us? And I want to set this up by talking about um, Bono. Maybe you've heard of him. He's... um, the front man for a band called You Also. And he, um, he did this interview a couple of years ago where he says this. Maybe you've heard this before. It's kind of a famous interview, but he says this. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so you sow stuff. Which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. 
Flannery Connor said, grace must wound before it can heal. And I've tried to show you with these first three points that grace does have a jagged edge to it. It will wound you if you will let it. But if you will let it wound you, if you will let it strip you and humble you, you are finally in a position where grace can then come in and heal you and transform you and, and blow your mind. If you are willing to admit about yourself, as one pastor put it, that you are an obedience-addicted, judgmental, scorekeeping, performance-oriented, self-validating approval addict, if you're willing to admit that about yourself, then you're in a position to let grace heal you. That quote is from uh, Ray Cortez, who's a pastor that I've gotten a lot of help from tonight. But he says, if you are willing to admit that you're an obedience-addicted, judgmental, scorekeeping, performance-oriented, self-validating approval addict, you're finally in a position to let grace come in and heal you. Because before, you might have been in heaven looking over at Jeffrey Dahmer and saying, how in the world did he get in? Why is he here? But maybe now you're at a point where, should you be in heaven, you could look over at Jeffrey Dahmer and you would say, how in the world did I get in? Why am I here? A, a uh, approval, a judgmental, scorekeeping, performance-oriented, self-validating approval addict like me? How did, how did someone like me get in? It's shocking. The one-hour workers are blown away by grace because they realize they don't deserve it. Question, are you blown away by it as well? Are you willing to see, I, re- I brought nothing to the table here. I'm, I haven't earned anything. I don't deserve anything. I brought nothing but my failure and my sin and my shame and my addictions. And he's lavished grace upon me. Only when you're willing to admit that, only when you're let, willing to let grace deconstruct you and, and offend you and wound you, will, will you get to a spot where it will blow your mind. How does that happen, though? Well, here's the last thing I want you to see. You've got to look back at the landowner. The landowner. There there is the craziest detail about this whole story, I think, comes in verse 8. In verse 8, you find out that this whole time this landowner has a foreman. A foreman is someone that oversaw the entire operation of the vineyard. But here is this landowner, basically like the CEO of the estate, driving into the market and like in his pickup truck, picking up crews back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Uh, CEOs, estate owners did not get involved in the practice at this level. By 9 a.m., this dude should have been like in an Eno, like throwing back Bloody Marys or something. Like he should not have been going back and forth like this. Why is he involved? He wants to be personally involved in the process. He wants to go himself. And it's, and it's interesting, those 12-hour workers, when they say, we've borne the heat of the day, the only reason they bore the heat of the day is because they had no other choice. Their options for that day was work out in the sun all day or starve to death. They had no other choice. But you know who else bore the heat of the day? The landowner. He was the one in the sun, back and forth, back and forth, picking up crews, gathering people, pursuing people, bringing them back home in the heat of the day when he didn't have to. He didn't have to. When you look at this landowner, you begin to see this is a story about Jesus himself. He was in heaven with the Father, and he didn't have to leave. But he left, and he personally came. 
He personally came down to take care of and be compassionate towards a group of people that couldn't take care of themselves, that had no other option but for his grace and his compassion to them. He empties his pockets. He becomes poor so that we who are poor might become rich. I mean, at the end of the day, he's giving us his money. He's giving us everything. And what's astounding is that um, he lived his life in such a way, he lived his life with such beauty that his life was really the only human life that ever lived that earned and merited and was entitled to the blessing and the favor of God. And yet on the cross, what do we hear him saying? Father, forgive them. Take what I deserve and give it to them. Grace is astounding. Grace will blow your mind when you put yourself in a position to say, I have brought nothing to the table. I earned nothing. And yet, by grace, I get everything. I deserve nothing but judgment. And because of grace, I get grace and favor and forgiveness and honor and glory. The first or last, because they think they've worked harder than everybody else and they feel like they've earned it. And the last are first, because they realize we've brought nothing to the table. Which one are you? Let me pray. Father, I pray that grace would indeed wound us in the places where we feel entitled, in the places where we feel arrogant, in the places where we feel self-sufficient, in the places where we feel like we deserve more. And yet I pray that grace would also flood our hearts with sweetness and with wonder that we would be amazed and astounded that we who really have brought nothing to the table get everything because of Jesus. Father, I confess I am an obedience-addicted, judgmental, scorekeeping, performance-oriented, self-validating, approval addict. Let grace begin to tear apart my own heart and then reconstruct it. And I pray that you do the same thing with my friends here. Bless us and show us your grace in new ways. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.